Hej och välkomna till Fritankes podd. Jag heter Christer Sturmark, förlagschef på Fritanke. Idag gästas vi av en indisk människorättsaktivist och rationalist. Babu Gugineni heter han. Egentligen heter han någonting mycket längre och krångligare, men det tänker jag ens försöka säga. Babu Gugineni, mycket spännande person som bland annat har tagit Dalai Lama- till domstol och vunnit en process för att rädda ett litet barn från att bli behandlad som en gudom och fråntagen sina mänskliga rättigheter som barn, nämligen rätten att gå i skola och få växa upp just som barn. Hör om det och mycket annat spännande om Indiens historia och nuvarande situation i denna podd. Så, Babu Gugineni, welcome to Fritanke podcast. Thank you very much. And I just learned that that's not your real, uh, your full name. Can you say the, your full name? Because I can't. Oh, well, my full name is Rajaji Ramanatha Babu Gogineni. Okay. One part of it is after a well-known statesman of India that my father admired. One part of it is my grandfather's name. One runs in the family. So there's nothing in my name that is my own. <laughs> That's wonderful. I actually saw a movie recently about a country man of yours called Srinivasa Ramanujan, mm-hmm. mathematician. Yes. Was that pronounced correctly? Um, let me help you. Srinivasa Ramanujan. Srinivasa Ramanujan. Ramanujan. Yes. It was pretty close. Yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Uh, very welcome. Let's first talk about who you are. You're a human rights activist, rationalist, secular humanist in India. Where mm-hmm. do you live? I'm in Hyderabad, South Central India. Um, the region speaks three languages. The most important language is Telugu, which is my mother tongue. Telugu also is the bridge between the North Indian and South Indian cultures as well. Uh, so that's where I come from. Okay. And as I understand it, you're quite profiled in India when it comes to these matters. You're on television shows a lot and you're sort of debunking gurus and new age uh, people and so on. Tell me, how did you get into that? Well, I was born a rationalist. I have been a humanist and an atheist almost throughout my life, including from school time. Um, I was the school atheist. Mm-hmm. So the one and only? There were two of us. Okay. Uh, one of them gave in to the pressures of the moral science class. I did not. <laughs> so it was good because I also won all the debates and discussions <laughs> about God. Mm. Well, when you have nothing on your side, how can you win the argument? <laughs> so those who carried God with them, lost. Okay. Um, so probably it was a discussion and a debate that started it. Um, and I had a Telugu language version of Darwin's writings. I took it to school to discuss it with my moral science teacher. I was about nine years old. And he said he would read the book and he did not return it till I was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite my reminders. When he returned it to me, it was still as new as when I had given it to him. And very kindly he said he wanted to protect me from its dangers. 
that is why he kept the book with himself and he was a hindu he was christian christian okay um the hindus will have less trouble with biological evolution because then they would trace in the mythology of the hindus the various avatars one of the avatara is a fish and another is a tortoise and another is a human a short man and then a tall man and in that they see evolution and they even see some science in that story mm-hmm. so of all the modern scientific theories um maya which is basically saying there is no go- uh, there is no matter and nothing is real uh is something they link to heisenberg's uncertainty principle and but that's weird it, because heisenberg doesn't say that nothing is real it doesn't matter to them okay okay <laughs> like with yep. all fundamentalists they are looking for justification for their belief in the modern articulation of science mm. um so on the one hand maya and is matter a wave or a particle is a great incentive to say look we already knew this um we spoke about the unreality of matter and for evolution as i explain they're very pleased that the lord took all these different forms to teach us evolution this must be a pretty dedicated teacher being born so many different ways just to teach us evolution <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting you mentioned the word avatars yeah uh, i don't think so many people know in sweden that the the word avatar like the the big hollywood movie avatar or avatars in computer games you know it's actually a hindu word right indeed it is and can you explain exactly what it means the concept of the avatara is that god periodically takes birth on earth to set right the problems in the world to save the world um and to correct the mistakes of the humans uh so every avatara has a purpose um so mostly and the most important function of these avataras is to make sure that dharma dharma which is the morals the hindu morals um are restored the idea strangely is that dharma should walk on all four feet as if it is some animal mm-hmm. and it's the job of the avatara to set it right so dharma morality will walk on four feet <laughs> but tell me dharma and karma is not the same thing they are different dharma is morality morality as understood by sanatana dharma the ancient belief Okay. The word Hindu is a new word. Mm-hmm. The word Hindu is a word given to the people on this side of the Sindhu river by the Persians. Mm-hmm. Simply because the Persians did not know how to pronounce sir. <laughs> so the river was Sindhu and because the Persian language does not have a clear ha a sa sound it turned into ha. and the sindhu people became the hindu people <laughs> okay <laughs> okay um, okay i didn't know that it's it's interesting this interaction with the world uh, which made the world call the people this side of the river sindhu hindus mm. and dharma is the way of life as expected by the god uh, 
and the holy scriptures and uh, karma and that essentially is your caste duties the karma the the dharma the dharma okay now the karma is what you earn while performing your caste duties and if you accumulate mm. enough and you're a good accountant then when you die and you're reborn you can go up the hierarchy of the caste system so dharma is the market rules and karma is the currency <laughs> <laughs> in a way yes um you have to bank your karma right okay so that you're rewarded in your afterlife when you are reborn um yes the way to live is decided by dharma and every caste would have its own and the reward of that is accumulated in the karma uh, and that can lead to either reward or punishment mm. in your next life uh, in your next birth i think would be the right word mm-hmm. uh, because all this is postulated around the idea that there must be a soul that when you die the soul remains alive and then it just wears a new shirt and that's a new body Okay. And where you're born, your station in life, your privileges are all decided by the system of dharma. And you consider all this superstition? It has to be. Uh when we say something has no basis in reality and yet is believed in, then you would say that that is a superstition. Even though it's so old? I was just kidding. <laughs> uh, When it's so old, we'd call it old superstition. Old superstition, exactly. <laughs> that's that's right. Um, <clears throat> first, a little bit about your your uh, um, growing up. You say you grew up in a family who were rationalist as well. Yes. So, yes. so in that sense, you have been um, affected by your parents and so on. But how how did they grow up? I mean, what, do they come from a Hindu family originally, some way back, or? that would be right i i would say i'm at least a third generation atheist or humanist from both sides of my parents mm-hmm. um uh it didn't mean that they were active activists humanists of the kind i am mm-hmm. uh certainly they were less orthodox and they did not have religious practices there were no images of gods at home mm. either in my mother's family or my father's family mm-hmm. so broadly there was a distancing from religion but this is not new or unique uh, my parents grew in homes which had already abandoned traditional orthodox superstitious sanskritized religion mm. uh, because hinduism from the 1850s started reforming itself and a huge number of reform movements came as a result of that and my parents and their parents were somehow a product of that reform movement i see so weddings were not always anymore with sanskritized rituals the ritualistic text was read and understood and people thought that's not appropriate for a wedding and they changed that to vows and promises which were in the language of the people not in sanskrit um, already in the 1930s that was happening mm. so my growing up in a rationalist family is not new i see uh, for indian society i'd like to talk a, lo- a little bit about indian history before we talk about current affairs because i i often 
when I discuss secular humanism in, in, in Sweden, a lot of people have the perception that this is a quite new phenomena. And uh, um, of course, that's true in the sense of organized uh, secular humanism. But I always say that it, the roots are, of course, Greek philosophy of nature and so on, Thales and Aximander and so on. But the interesting thing is that I understand that in, in Indian uh, philosophy, it also, I mean, the secular rationalist, the secular humanist rationalist attitudes that you have go very long back in Indian philosophy as well. Isn't that the case? That would be absolutely right. Um, but actually, we must look at whether there was naturalistic attitude in India, because the rest of it follows from there. Yeah. And already by the time the Buddha was born, which and, was when? which was he was born about ninety years before Socrates. Mm. Um, so when the Buddha was born, already was established a school of thought, which believed that this could not have been the result of a creation, that it always existed like this. Um, a well-known philosophy school of philosophy in India is that of the Sankhyas, and the Sankhyas said. Matter cannot be created out of nothing, by which they meant nothing has been created. It has always existed. Mm. In parallel, you had the Vaisesikas, who, tremendously interesting, much before the Greeks, postulated that the universe was made of atoms, mm. and these were indivisible. Mm -hmm. uh, we shouldn't get carried away that they somehow had a notion of the modern idea of atom. But, but certainly, was, was it before Democritus? Yes. Mm. Uh, but certainly what is interesting uh, is almost for the first time in the world's history, people were looking for natural answers for questions of nature instead of supernatural answers. And that tendency was certainly something which was vibrant in India. The mention of the non-believers is to be found in the Vedas. If the Vedas are really 4,000 years old or 5,000 years old, then the non-believers are mentioned in them. Mm -hmm. So we are at least as old as a religious tradition. There is a tradition called Charvaka, Lokayata. Yes. What uh, is that? Um, before I mention the Charvakas mm. to you, already before the Charvakas, the senior contemporaries of the Buddha were already proposing that we come from matter and return to it, um, that there was no afterlife and there was no soul. Uh, in fact, Ajita Kesa Kambali scolded the Buddha for not being clearer in his mind about God and the universe, because the Buddha kept repeatedly saying, this is not a question we can solve. Let us look at what we can do about the good living and the good thinking. For the non-believing world, the moral philosopher was the Buddha. Mm -hmm. In this context, the Charvakas that you mentioned are the ones who brought in common sense into the discussion. And the Charvakas are mentioned also uh, in the great epics in the Mahabharata. Uh, in the Mahabharata, Dharmaraja. The name of the king is Dharmaraja, the one who rules according to Dharma. 
and the dharma was observing the caste duties and so on uh, there was a great stupendous war mahabharata is a story of war and millions of people according to the epic had been slaughtered so the charvakas go into the court when they learn that the king was now starting a new expedition of conquest and the charvakas go in there and counsel the king that after so much murder and mayhem he should not be thinking of new wars and the charvakas were put to death for having said it so one conclusion we can have is that they thought more of the human and they were actually advocating pacifism of a kind uh, there are many many negative references to the charvakas that is the only way we know about them everything that they wrote has been destroyed mm-hmm. and in the compendium of philosophy the charvakas are criticized for having mocked at the brahmins who were standing in reverse and ma- making oblations of the water to their ancestors in the heavens so the charvakas are supposed to have gone into the same water and done the same thing <laughs> and then the brahmins were very angry and they said why are you doing this whereas you mock at us and they said we are watering our fields if you could water your ancestors in the heavens why can't we water our fields next door hmm. so they used argumentation they used common sense examples and they said that like a beetle leaf and calcium coming together will produce red color which is what pan is when you eat so will a body given nourishment get life life is that it is it is got a natural basis it is not divinely given to anyone mm. so these were these wise gentle people helping also gently mocking uh, at the beliefs around them they are also credited with i say credited because i appreciate them but they were criticized for saying this they are believed to have said eat well be merry and be happy it is almost what we say now as modern humanists mm. this is the only life we have this is where we have to enjoy and live the right life so the charvakas are a bit moral uh, philosophers or at least counselors moral counselors certainly very strong skeptics mm. they even criticize the vedas and the priesthood and the clergy in a way that has not been done until before the french revolution in europe very powerful critique very strong the result must have been that they were eliminated uh, because we see nothing of what their writings are except as i said in the criticisms of them when we reconstruct they turn out to be very noble people Uh, it's interesting because i see a parallel to the western history where where you know in the medieval times the monk the monks in the in the monasteries the christian monasteries they saved the greek philosopher writings by copying them you know but they only chose to save those who were compatible with the christian theology so 
Epicurus, for example, and some other philosophers who sort of didn't really go well with Christianity, they didn't copy that. So we mm. don't have almost anything from them, but we have a lot from others. So it's, it's, it's a Indeed. way of manipulating history. And that's the same thing in your, your history, I can hear. Absolutely. That's very interesting. Uh, one would say um, Buddhism is a result of this kind of naturalistic thinking. Mm. And the kings of India, there was no real India then. They were little kingdoms. And there were great conquests by some of these little kings who built these empires. So the biggest empire then known was that of the Nanda dynasty. And it was non-Brahminical. It was not a Kshatriya warrior clan which built that kingdom. Uh, the Buddha preached equality. He opened up his doors to people from any caste. He visited as part of his propaganda for his ideas. He visited anybody's home, including those of the reviled prostitutes. Mm. If they invited him for lunch, he would go and have it there. Uh, so the new egalitarian society that could have been uh, India's fate if it was properly accepted got destroyed within a few hundred years of the Buddha's death. Mm -hmm. uh, and India has not recovered from that revival of religious, casteist uh, privileges and punishments. So would you say that the Buddhism, the traditional Buddhism was atheistic? The Buddha was certainly not religious. Mm not theistic mm. and did not believe in a God mm. and he did not believe in a soul. That we cannot say of all of Buddhism no. uh, because soon people started all these stories, especially of the Mahayana kind, when it adopted the Maya, the illusion, the world is an illusion yeah. idea okay. of Hinduism. But certainly the Buddha, who refused to engage in any discussion about God, on grounds that you can never arrive at any conclusion, lived as if there was no God, lived as if there was no rebirth, and lived as if he was there to teach people to look after themselves and focus on good living. Mm. A really modern humanist, mm. even though he was born then. Mm. Or Epicurus in the Greek tradition. Yes, mm. indeed, mm. indeed. Very interesting. Uh, and he opened his doors, as I said, to everyone. Uh, which meant the caste system became weak during his time. And the reaction is what killed um, Buddhism and the liberating ideas. That was India's renaissance. And that got destroyed because of this. So the caste system existed before Buddha? Of course it did, yeah. yes. And what does it come, go back to, to? The roots of the caste system. <coughs> what is that? Um, if you go by the text, there is justification for it in all the holy texts. Mm. Um, the Hindu the, texts. The Hindu texts, yeah, yeah. which means it antedates the texts themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are talking at least 4,000 years before now, mm -hmm. at least. If you were to accept the claims of certain Hindu scholars, then the Vedas may be 10,000 years old. But there is no real justification to believe that might be right. Uh, the development of language, um, the material mention in that language is referring to what 
existed maybe 2,000, 3,000 years ago, um, or at best 4,000 years mm. ago. So the caste system existed before then because it was already spoken of and written. Where does its origins lie? The origins of the caste system are really in profession and in descent. Um, certain professions are considered filthy because they deal with body secretions or with dead bodies themselves or with filth. Uh, so people who cleaned, people who dealt with dead bodies and sometimes even doctors mm -hmm. because they had to deal with bodies would be kept at a distance with the ideas of taboo uh, that, that reinforced this practice. And there was dissent. Uh, if you married and you had children, not according to what was approved by the holy texts, because you are not expected to aspire about your caste to look for your partner. The result of such a marriage or sexual union would be um, outcast, and that's how you would have untouchables. Mm. Um, everyone needed to know where they were born because then duties came to you because of your birth. So it was your birth and it was your profession which were linked. You couldn't leave either your caste or your profession. So a kind of slavery of professions. Mm. Um, in all this, the Brahmin was the most privileged. Yeah, the highest caste. The highest caste, uh, bestowed with the wisdom of the gods, speaking the language of the gods, Sanskrit. Mm. And not everyone else, like in Europe here, not everyone else was allowed to read or write uh, books written in the holy language, because that was that belonged to only a few. Mm. Uh, the king and the gods were controlled by the Brahmins through the Sanskrit language. Uh, that meant if you were born a Brahmin, you held the keys to heaven and afterlife and rebirth. Uh, if you were a Kshatriya, the warrior caste, then it was your job to rule or to protect the land. And they, they were the traders and they were the agriculturists. And then they were the casteless because they were not even human. Those would be the Dalits or the untouchables. Mm. This is a very simplified version of what the caste system is. We have 6,000 castes, but they're broadly in these categories. Yeah, I see. Okay, but if we fast forward till modern times now, um, would you say that sort of the Charvaka tradition that is upheld by 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 you and the rationalist movement and the secular humanist movement in India today. Is that a correct description? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, because it's a strong movement in India, as I understand it. It is, yeah. it is. Uh, but there were others who helped as well. Regionally, not everything and every form of Hinduism was detrimental to human welfare. Mm. Uh, there were periods of reform, and extraordinary wisdom through the poetry um, and the moralizing teachings of people like Kabir Das. Um, then in my own native language, but that's not limited to my language, they were rationalist poets who challenged, questioned, 
queried, advised, scolded uh, people for the divisions in society and, and asking people to think in a commonsensical way. Mm. And then we see a revival of this in the 1800s, partly because of the influence of Western colonialism. Mm -hmm. New scholarship, exposure to new ideas, some Indians traveling to Europe, uh, they avoided going to England because England was the occupying country. Many went to Ireland, studied, did law, did a bit of science, came back and changed things. I think they rekindled the interest in rationalism and the discovery of the Sanskrit texts, their translations by some Germans, um, by many English people, the Asiatic society. That laid the foundations. On those foundations, I would say people like me, we are beneficiaries of that investigation, research, mm. would work. Mm. And yes, the Promethean spirit of the Charvakas, um, the moralizing influence they had on society, uh, is certainly an important component in how the movement has been constructed. Mm. But the movement is more sophisticated than what it was during the Charvaka's time. Yeah, of course. Because uh, we have for science. obvious reasons. Yeah, we have uh, science, developed science now. Um, you must mention, because we have talked earlier about uh, Tibet and Dalai Lama and so <laughs> on. And, and I, I, a few years ago I spent a month in Tibet actually, uh, because it's a, it's, it's a beautiful country. I did a lot of photography. And, uh, but I also saw that it's a, it's a variant of Buddhism that is full of supernatural ideas and superstition, obviously. And I know that you have been involved with the Dalai Lama in a certain case, because he's very popular in Sweden, you know. Everybody thinks he's this fantastic, uh, friendly guy, and uh, undoubtedly he's got a very charismatic attitude. But tell us about your case with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> At one point, I should uh, try to interest a Hollywood filmmaker on the, in this story. Yeah. It's got all the ingredients of a very interesting uh, interface between faith, human rights, religion, politics, and greed. Mm. Um, the Dalai Lama is a representative of the stupid form of Buddhism. Uh, it's a mountain Buddhism. Uh, which really believes in rebirth. And why do I use harsh words when I talk about this? Because the Dalai Lama's own urine and feces were considered to be holy for people to consume. And people did that. Uh, Buddhism, I took the opportunity to tell you what Buddhism was when the Buddha proposed it. And look at where Vajrayana Buddhism brought it to that the feces and the waste, biological waste of humans could be considered holy. So the Dalai Lama comes from that tradition. He himself is an extraordinarily charming person, personally, but in his previous incarnations he was not. This is Dalai Lama number 13, but Dalai Lama number 12 isn't it 14 now? Oh, sorry, 14. Yes. Um, I'm sorry. Number 13 is the one who supported the Nazis. Mm. Uh, since it's the same Dalai Lama, I'd like to ask number 14, why did he do it when he was number 13? <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, 
if you're a superstitious number four, 13 is a bad number you know? maybe that's why that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all for the christians of course yeah, number yeah, 13 yeah. um but my main quarrel with the dalai lama was this little charming child who started speaking like an adult six year old talking about the independence for tibet china becoming democratic and the claim that was made on behalf of this little charming child by the adults around the child that she communicates with the dalai lama through telepathy which when, is, was, when is this happening uh, this is 2009 mm -hmm. and where and where um, this happened actually not far from hyderabad where i live in india in india not not in tibet not in Tibet. The, the Dalai Lama has not been to Tibet since his flight no, that's right. in 59. Um, and now that should tell you something. He left in 59. Mm. This fraud started in 2009. So it was oh. an anniversary celebration. Interesting. Because I've been in Dharamsala as well, where he's residing now. So Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, he's never been to Tibet since his no. second flight from there. Uh, what was being what was being launched on the people of India was a fraudulent claim that this child had supernatural powers, that this was the reincarnation of a dead playmate of the Dalai Lama, mm -hmm. and she had all these powers. So we said, do not believe in this, this is not right, and so on. So some journalists went to the Dalai Lama and said, is it right that this child has all these special powers? And he confirmed it. So I did some research and found out this was the anniversary of his flight from, uh, from Tibet to India. And I started saying, is he now commemorating this to bring back focus onto what is happening in Tibet, but using a child? I would like Tibet to be independent, mm. but I cannot see it happening over the life of a six-year-old child. No. People are not instruments in political ambitions of rulers. And then I checked what the Dalai Lama was up to, and I saw that he made a speech wherein he said it is not necessary that he should be reborn in China because it's not convenient anymore for Tibetan Buddhism. Then he said, perhaps he should be born in India. And then he also said, it's not necessary that I should be reborn as a boy. Really? I put these things together. That's a very feminist statement. <laughs> yes, except that when you are mad and say various things, some things are very interesting. Mm. Why do I say mad? Uh, he even said that he would be reborn even before he died. Mm -hmm. Now, you figure that out because I can't. Mm. How can you be reborn before you die? Just the idea that dead people can be reborn, mm. the idea that you can choose where you can be reborn, like buying a flight ticket, uh, saying I will not be reborn in China, it will be in India. In that context, to say I will be reborn as a child, does not impress me when even if he says as a girl child mm. because the whole thing is meaningless mm. but when you pull all these informations together here he is alive and promoting a girl child 
and saying she has divine powers and she's speaking about the liberation of Tibet and so on, obviously parroting things. I do a little bit of investigation and I see pictures and videos of the Dalai Lama uh, cuddling the child, keeping the child in his, in his own lap while they are performing together Tibetan Buddhist religious ceremonies. Is she a Tibetan girl? No, she is a Telugu girl. What is a Telugu? Telugu is a language we all speak okay. in my region. Mm -hmm. But her origins were not revealed to be Telugu. The adults near the child kept saying the child was born to Brahmin parents who they cannot identify and the child was found in Kashi in Banaras, the most famous, the most sacred of all Hindu uh, cities. So she doesn't have a parents? Well, this was my question. Mm. Firstly, you say you found the child, then you say you don't know who the parents are, but you're very sure about the child's caste. That you should find a child whose parents are not known, but who is Brahmin, but born in the holiest of Indian cities, and able to communicate with the greatest spiritual leaders of all times through telepathy. She also claimed that she now and then consults with the Buddha. I have a child who at that time was almost the same age as this child. And I said, as a father, I couldn't accept that this is how a child was being deluded into believing that she can talk to people, to dead people, mm. think that the child has special powers. It was obvious, despite all the efforts by everybody, uh, to pass this fraud as reality, that the child was being coached. So I first requested the media, I requested the adults around the child and said they shouldn't do this anymore. But when it was the International Child Rights Day and it was the 50th anniversary of that treaty declaration, I called the TV channels and I said, last night the child yawning was at 10.30 in the night on TV because you are not letting the child have a normal life. Um, I wrote an open letter to the Dalai Lama that he should stop this spurious claims. And I went to the Human Rights Commission and I complained that the rights of the child will require that the child should be allowed to be brought up as a child, which means a life which is far away from the brainwashing that the child is being subjected to, the idea that the child has supernatural powers. Whichever state of India you take the child to, the child will start speaking that language. And India has many languages. Mm. That mosquitoes never bite the child. She never sweats. And this divine person can engage in a conversation with a PhD on any subject that they can choose. This must be easy to test. But you are not allowed to test someone who is installed in a temple. No. Already they had built a temple for the child mm -hmm. and the child was in it. Mm -hmm. So my campaign slogan was, should the child be in school or in temple? Uh, in my native tongue, it sounds good. It How was it, uh, it was a midnight inspiration. Uh, Shambhavi, that's the name of the child. Gudilona, Badilona. Goody is a temple, Badi is the school. Okay. 
and it was a question i was asking the 80 million telugu people and other as many numbers of south indians who were watching this charade on television without saying anything if it was your child would you accept this do you believe that a dead person can be reborn in which case what about the non vegetarians do you think that the chicken and the fish and everything else that you eat will come back to life do you think that this is real and it went on with open letters to the dalai lama complaints to the human rights commission and television campaign and more information started emerging of lama ozel torres in spain who at the age of 11 or 14 days was identified by the dalai lama as a child with divine powers and conscripted into his religious objectives of creating religious leaders this fraudulent activity is criminal of a kind that i can't excuse picking up little babies and giving them religious names and identities and histories and creating stories around them psychologically damaging them and saying these are divine so i argued my case in the human rights commission along the lines that i have just clarified i supplied to them information of dozens of such children being recruited and groomed to be tibetan leaders or of leaders of tibetan buddhism it's a human rights abuse uh, the government was forced to appoint a commission to investigate whether this 6 year old child has any supernatural abilities so those tests were done and the top level bureaucrats revealed that they could not find anything special about the child then it turns out that a huge number of people who seemed to know what was happening at the ground level started whispering into my ear So this is not born to Brahmin parents in Kashi this was a child born in Telugu land this woman next to her who said she found the baby by the Ganges was actually her biological mother mm. my final petition to the human rights commission was no one would normally deal with their own child in this manner this child might have been abducted from somewhere and used as a circus animal for this deception being rolled out on the people and then the family which was promoting all this got scared mm-hmm. then they declared because now was a danger <clears throat> for the government to take over the welfare of the child mm-hmm. and they said this is our child and this this is the birth certificate and we said that's very good because the thieves are now crawling out of the woodwork and we then then said under the right to free, freedom of uh, education compulsory education the freedom is for the child the compulsion is for the government every child should be put compulsorily in school according to the law that was a new law it would surprise you in 2009 that was when the law came in in india uh-huh. um it became active in 2010 and i was the first one to invoke the law in the court and said this child should now be sent to school okay so how did it well end what it is it ended 
She's 14 uh, years old now. There are two ends to this. Okay. The child was sent to school, but sent to a school in Dharamshala. Yeah, the family spirited away the child, put the child in a school in Dharamshala. Where the Dalai Lama is. Where the Dalai Lama is. I then got information about the Dalai Lama's active promoting of this fraud by people he was trying to involve in this, directly himself and on his behalf, his administration. The other most delicious ending to this is the Dalai Lama thought that he would still come and install the child in temple while this was going on. Um, this was a two-year soap opera of every day, almost, I being on one TV channel or the other, and the child also being promoted as this. The Dalai Lama came to Hyderabad to go to the place where the child was residing. He came to Hyderabad he was to address a press conference, he was to deliver a religious sermon, and he was to talk to a student's group. He cancelled all those public engagements. He stayed, this ascetic who has renounced everything, he stayed in a seven-star hotel for three days without coming out, sulking, that he was not going to get the welcome he thought he was going to get. He did not go to install the child and he just scooted. Why do I use these harsh words for one who is so loved by so many people? Because he has used the Nobel Peace Prize, which in fact he got because of China, not because of his own merit. There was a Tiananmen Square massacre mm. and he got it in protest at what China did but he has himself done nothing to merit it beyond a few nice sounding statements of the self-help, positive psychology kind. Mm -hmm. He has only ever used the gullibility and vulnerability of people to advance his religious causes linked with his political cause. Has he gone on record that the Tibet office that he wants from China would be a democratic Tibet? Or has he said that it would be a continuation of the theocratic society, um, the government, that he was running as a child before he left the country? Mm. He himself, the Dalai Lama, is a victim of being recruited as a child and brainwashed into thinking he had this divine mission and he was this divine person so far born 13 times, now the 14th one. Mm. Rebirth is a problem. He benefited from it and he also exploited it, despite it being something which victimized him as well. Annie Besant, the English once free thinker, women's rights activist, during the colonial time, passing by in the streets, found a child playing in the sands and said, this is the world teacher. They picked up the child against the wishes of the parents and said this was a world teacher and the Theosophical Society adopted him and that was Jiddu Krishnamurti. Mm. Jiddu Krishnamurti also was a victim of this belief. that Krishnamurti, yeah. I know people in Sweden who look up to him. Indeed. Mm. Um, in fact, Sweden is 
a place, a country where he found a lot of support, mm. the Netherlands as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Krishnamurti, at the end of his teens, had the extraordinary honesty to declare that he was not the world teacher, that no one can teach the world in which way to go, that truth is a pathless land and each one has to find out what that path is. Mm. That was great morality. But what happened to this child who now should be like 14 years old? The child is 14, now beyond the purview of the Compulsory Education Act and they are trying to relaunch the child as a spiritual leader. And what's her name? Shambhavi. So you can f- Google that and find out about absolutely, her? Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the, the current situation in India now. Uh, I know that the Hindu nationalism is rising and um, uh, ha- has come into power, uh, Narendra Modi. Uh, but tell us a little bit about what's going on in India right now, the political situation. Well... Even to do that, I have to tell you of the run-up to where okay. I started. Sure. In the 80s was when we had only one television channel, the government-run one. And in that were broadcast fairly well-made mythological stories of Hinduism. So the Ramayana and Mahabharata, especially the Mahabharata, is a great epic with extraordinary moral dilemmas in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's instructive, it's engaging, and almost all of India was watching it. And the groundwork was laid for what would happen later. What people started giving only their Sundays to in the morning when the TV program was on turned into what people were giving all their days and every day of the week to a religious identity, religious observations and observances. And because the Salman Rushdie matter came up, Mm. um, the Muslims were becoming very agitated. India was the first country in the world to ban the satanic verses. Not Pakistan, not Iran, not Iraq. But so India, India first. first. India before, first. Before uh, Khomeini yes. pronounced the fatwa. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Now, yeah, this yeah. is also very sad. Mm. Um, and the Hindu population noticed it. And those who depend on their votes were very, very keen on exploiting this, that the Muslims were being given this special privileges. Along with that came a court judgment which was in favor of the rights of Muslim women who could be divorced with the triple talaq. Mm. Pronouncing the word talaq three times ends the bond of marriage or the contract of marriage. Mm. And there was no necessity that there would be any maintenance to be given. So a poor old woman asked for a pittance of money, 50 or 60 rupees, about half a little more than a pound, a monthly maintenance. And the husband refused, she went to court. Court decided that it was unjust for her not to be given maintenance and it was wrong for anyone to have divorced somebody like this. The second part was not the main trust, the first part was. And the government then, by Rajiv Gandhi, Uh, ironically called Protection of Muslim Women's Rights Act 
brought in legislation which legitimized the Islamic way of saying divorce without having to give maintenance to the woman. This triggered the anger of the Hindu population. Parallelly, what was supposed to be the birthplace of Lord Rama, there were a hundred such places claiming to be that in the city of Ayodhya. Unfortunately, one of those claimant places also has a mosque on it. So they honed in on this and they said, this is a real birthplace on which the mosque is built. Now we will pull it down. The pulling down of the mosque was not allowed by the Supreme Court. Politics was played and despite assurances to the Supreme Court that they would not do it, a huge number of people allowed to go near the mosque barehandedly pulled down a huge, huge mosque. That kind of set the seal on the divide in the country on the basis of religion. Here was this gang of people, this mob, which prior to that went to village to village in the country asking each of you give one brick because we will build the temple for Rama there. So they involved everyone in the country. In what could have been, if it was a positive thing to do, to build hospitals everywhere. Give me a brick, I'll build a hospital. Give me a brick, let's have a school. Let's have a library. No, they did it for this temple. And this set the tone for the politics of India since then. So what is happening now is that after a few experiments by the Hindu Nationalist Party, they are now in power without needing the balancing that coalition partners can provide at times. Um, new forces are being unleashed on the nation. These are forces of casteism and superstition and great intolerance towards whoever is not Hindu. Uh, that includes the minorities. So the minor- What are the minorities? Uh, the big minorities in India would be Islamic and then Christian. Mm. The Christian minorities are more Um, targeted because they run the schools, they had the hospitals. Mm. So they know that people who go to such schools, who are treated in such hospitals, will have a positive image of Christianity. So conversion, which has been happening, is something that the Hindu uh, majority do not like. They may have expelled you from the village and the town. They may have called you not human, and said, you are untouchable, stay outside the village. But they did not allow them to leave Hinduism, despite calling them non-human and Mm. treating them as that. Many of these excommunicated people turned to Christianity, at times because the Christians gave them money, Mm. because everybody is accounting for some funder somewhere in the Vatican or in the US, and the evangelicals and the Christian missionaries are counting the number of people they've converted. So they're against that, obviously. Um, Then they're against the Muslims who are getting this preferential treatment uh, because they've been considered as a vote bank. Mm. If 15 to 20% of people can form a vote bank, they forgot what 70% can do as a vote bank. 
So the politics is now of vote banks and of intolerance and of intimidation. Uh, what I read, I read somewhere that Narendra Modi is trying to justify the caste system with genetic arguments. Yes. Do, can uh, you say something about uh, that? I'm, I would not be able to directly link it to Prime Minister Modi. Okay. okay. Uh, but there is now an active uh, move uh, to commission studies uh, in genetics that would prove that the division of caste has a basis in genes, which to some extent might turn out to be not too too far away from their claims because if for 2,000 years you had social incest, yeah, okay, then yeah. the sample that you select will obviously confirm that. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it's very much, it reminds of the, the race biology of the Nazis but, in the um, 1930s. That cruel reminder is there in the newspapers regularly. In Someone India. Today mm. in India, Someone has said that this is the way in which you can produce children of A, B, C qualities, mm -hmm. all of which are the Aryan qualities, mm -hmm. uh, all of which are these genetically superior qualities. Um, I last year had a debate in the US with a religious priest, um, a priest, Hindu priest, religious person. That's not his full-time job. He actually works in the IT industry. And in the course of our debate about religion, it wasn't specifically about Hinduism, he lamented that Indian population today is polluted, by which he means people are marrying within castes, and therefore the gene pool that he values is all polluted. Mm. So when you leave your country, but you don't leave your stupidity about people and their genetic composition mm. and ideas of superiority, it tells us something. Mm -hmm. um, they have used their new riches and their new positions in, uh, in the world to only advance the primitiveness from which they emerged. Uh, so the battle is complicated because the educated people, like you said, genetic tests are being commissioned, advice is being given on who you can marry and who you should not to preserve the gene pool. Um, the caste system doesn't necessarily have only the Brahmins promoting it. Everybody does it. Uh, it would be wrong to say the Brahmins are promoting it, they're only 3%. It's the other castes which are promoting it. And the caste system is so ingrained in people's lives, and this would surprise you, that the untouchable communities have internal untouchability as well. So, of those who are kicked out of the village and kept at a distance, even their shadow is not allowed, they amongst themselves have temples for one part of them and another temple for another kind. They will not eat with each other. So, in my work in uh, Against Untouchability, some of the things I have done is work with senior social activists to have interdining amongst the untouchable communities, mm. because they also need to. So this is a nationwide disaster. And you have ideas floating around like uh, 
airplanes was in, invented in India 3,000 years ago and s- such things. Who is saying that, by the way? Um, <laughs> it is a very complicated thing where we are now. It is people who claim to know Sanskrit, people who claim to have studied India's history, who are making these claims. And as you said, there are people who are saying Bharadvaja Mahamuni, uh, a rishi that they can name, a saint that they can name. Uh, They say that he has written uh, a manual on how to create an aeroplane and therefore aeroplanes existed. And is there not a description of a flying machine in which people were transported in this epic and in that epic. Mm, Therefore mm. it is true. And is it Hindu nationalists who are saying this? It is absolutely they. And it's a way to sort of make them superior people, the Hindus? And they are in their mind fighting a battle with the Westerners. Mm. They are fighting a battle with the achievements of Western Europe and Mm. North America. Mm. And they do not want to be considered backward in achievements. Mm. So the great war of Mahabharata and those superior weapons recorded as being used in the Mahabharata as part of the story are now considered history. So the nuclear bombs of the 1940s were really the bombs that were deployed in the name of these superior weapons that the ancient Hindus used. Mm. The aeroplanes that you talk of today were always there. The remote control was invented. The idea, the modern idea of atom we already had. The distance between the earth and the sun was already measured and so on and so forth. Mm. It's a great tragedy, these trashy claims, because India has had, even though we wouldn't call it India then, today we call it India, These were little kingdoms and Mm. principalities, united by a culture and broadly by a language of learning. Sanskrit was the language of learning. And very few people know that only 5% of Sanskrit literature is religious. The rest is literature, scientific, Mm. mathematics. Fantastic. And yes, Aryabhata came 800 years after Aristotle. But he got it right, whereas Aristotle got it wrong. They, he was the one who established through his observations uh, the spherical nature of the earth. The, the idea that the earth was going around the sun. The explanation for eclipses. Through mathematics, mm. the, the working with the problem of pi. It doesn't really matter who did it first, because whoever was born first would do it. Mm. But the fact that this achievement is in India's credit and that we are not talking of that. The concept of zero, which is, I must say, not unique to India, though wrongly said so. Uh, many civilizations understood the idea of mm. zero and the decimal point. Uh, but also India can claim to have contributed to that understanding and one of the first countries to have done mm. so. Um, the idea that um, alchemy was defining um, Indian science is so insulting because real chemistry was being was being practiced alloys were made 2000 year old temples um, temple flags with with 
metallic staffs without getting rusted. Mm-hmm. But tell me, what you're saying is that India has a real history of <coughs> fantastic science and now people come to claim a lot of ridiculous scientific discoveries in the Indian history and also uh, uh, brings back pseudoscience into the universities like race biology or, or astrology I know is coming into the universities now. And so I, as I understand you, there is there's a true history of science that should be talked about instead. Is that what Absolutely. you Absolutely. Yeah. Um, mathematics, especially. Mm. Uh, physics. Mm. Ideas, cosmological ideas, concepts, which are fascinating. Mm. And which are limited by the absence of measuring instruments and higher mathematics. Uh, but which are remarkable as an achievement for a civilization. Uh, those would be great. Mm. And instead you study astrology at universities. Um, that's right. And alarmingly and disastrously, um, about 15, 20 years ago, a Minister for Human Resource Development offered to rough 300 universities in India, funded by the government, that they would fund astrology departments if they would start them. But that funding would be after withdrawing it from physics and chemistry departments. Mm. Only 11 or 12 vice chancellors had the guts to say, no, we don't want this. Incredible. Which means the rest of them complied. Mm. And now these astrologers are infesting Indian society everywhere. Uh, for everything, there is a ritual, there is a holy time. By the way, if you're traveling to India and you find that the trains and the planes are full and there's not many seats available, try doing it on a Tuesday. Because traveling on Tuesdays is not recommended by astrology. So you're likely to have more free seats. <laughs> That's good to know. That's very good to know. <laughs> uh, finally, we're going to end soon, but I just want to ask you, it's, it's obviously becoming also dangerous to do what you are doing in India. Just a few days ago, a colleague of yours were murdered, right? Yes. Can you yes. tell us about that a little bit? Uh, this rash of killing... Uh, started a few years ago. Uh, there was Narendra Dhabolkar, one of the most respected rationalist public figure, who was advocating a legislation which would regulate astrologers and geomancers and whoever was making a claim um, that would be chargeable by them. So it was a trade practice regulation, really, uh, saying nobody shall be allowed to exploit others in the name of their superstition. He was killed just about the time when, in his state of Maharashtra, this would have become a legislative bill. Uh, since then, at least four very prominent rationalists, humanists, fighters of social justice, have been eliminated. Uh, when we say rationalist, I think one gets the idea that these are simply skeptics and questioning some religious claims. But these are all humanists. And even if they call themselves rationalists or atheists, they're doing several things at the same time. They're fighting superstition, but they're offering a positive idea of how society should be. Based on reason, evidence-based beliefs, 
with freedom of religion, mm. but so, with full access to modern science. Yeah, it's secular humanism, basically. It is humanism. Mm. Today, the word secular is understood in humanism. Mm. The way In Swedish, it means more than one thing. So in Sweden, we say secular humanism. Because right. in Swedish, you can say, I'm a humanist. It can mean that you studied literature at university as well. Ah, but it's different in English. Yes. Uh, so I would say I am a rationalist, an atheist, a humanist. And most of the time I mean the same things. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I imply the same things. Social justice, no privilege, no caste, um, no concept of soul that survives uh, a person's mm. life, uh, no idea of rebirth and all these things together. Mm. This is a major threat to the dominant religious beliefs of society. Mm. And the Hindu nationalism. Absolutely. So, who, who was um, so killed now? the latest person to be killed uh, is a lady journalist. She was as much a journalist as she was um, a rationalist. This is Gauri, Gauri Lankesh. Um, Gauri was 55 years old and she was a vehement critique of nationalist right-wing politics. She was also a critique of extreme left activism and wanting to bring the Maoists, uh, rebels, back into mainstream life. Today it's not known or established who exactly killed her, but it is obvious who is celebrating her death. Mm. The ones celebrating her death are the Hindu right-wing nationalist groups. Mm. On Facebook there are people who are saying if necessary she would, they would go and kill her again, that they would pump bullets into her body. Look at how inhuman this has become. A helpless lady killed um, at, at close, gun, uh, close quarters by gun. And young people are saying they would go and kill the lady again. This tells us how much low we have gone because of fundamentalism. Gauri was killed, but there are several of my senior colleagues who are actively listed in the hit list. Narendra Nayak, who is the president of the Federation of Rationalist Societies, uh, Indian Rationalist Associations, mm. FIRA it is called, has two people guarding him 24 hours of the day, armed guards. Uh, others are also in the list. Now and then such names are whispered. Um, it has become dangerous to be doing what the Indian constitution calls on Indians to do. Article 51AH of the Indian Constitution. It's, it spells the duties of Indian um, citizens. And the constitutional duty in 51AH is that all citizens should promote humanism, science, the spirit of science and social reform. The preamble to the Indian Constitution has the word secular. Very few constitutions of the world have the words secular, scientific temper, social reform, and humanism in one tome. This Fantastic. one does. Fantastic. Sweden Maybe. certainly does not have that in the Constitution. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a role model, but I really hope it's going to go in that direction as well. Okay, we should end here. This was a long podcast, but very interesting. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you.